Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mr. Graney's Global Podcast. In this episode, we are going to be studying another belief system. Uh, This time, we're going to be looking at Islam. Islam is one of the most practiced religions throughout the world, and in this episode, we are going to be focusing on its origins, its beliefs and ideas, and then where and how it spread. Now, um, in addition to the podcast, there's also a Google Slides presentation that goes with the podcast. It's just got some images on it, and it's got um, the transcript of this uh, podcast uh, typed out so that you can visually see what is being talked about as well as listen to it. All right, so be sure to change slides when I direct you to do so. All right, so here we go. Uh, So if you look at slide number one in the uh, Google Slides podcast, you will see a map of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, uh, Islam began at the Arabian Peninsula. The Arabian Peninsula is the crossroads of three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. Now, this area of the world is also known as the Middle East, and it includes modern-day countries such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Turkey, Syria, and then a few others. This area of the world is very arid, meaning dry, but it does have some uh, diverse geographical features. These include the Arabian Desert, which is the fourth largest desert in the world, and it covers just about all of the Arabian Peninsula. In addition to this, it also has the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which we should remember for our, from our study of Mesopotamia. Now, there are also a few large bodies of water that surround the Arabian Peninsula. These include the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea to the east, the Persian Gulf to the west, and then the Arabian Sea and Indian Ocean on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, these large bodies of water allowed for trade and travel for people on the Arabian Peninsula, and it led to contact and cultural diffusion with other areas of the world like East Africa, India, Southeast Asia, and then eventually China. All right, so next we're going to look at the origins of Islam. All right, so you should now go to the second slide of your Google Slides presentation. The Arabian Peninsula has historically been known as Arabia, and people who come from this region are known as Arabs. By the early 600 CEs, trade routes connected Arabia to the major ocean and land trade routes. Merchants from all over the area traded along different trade routes like the Silk Road, and a couple more that we'll mention later on. These merchants brought different ideas and goods from outside of Arabia. During certain holy months, caravan stops in the city of Mecca, a city in Western Arabia which became known as the birthplace of Islam. Here, they brought religious people who came to worship at an ancient shrine in the city called the Kaaba. The Arabs associated this house with the worship of Abraham, a Jewish prophet. The concept of belief in one God, called Allah, was started on the Arabian Peninsula. And if we remember that the concept uh, of believing in one God is called monotheism. In this area at the time, there were Christians and Jews that lived there and practiced monotheism. 
Into this mix was brought the believers in Allah, and eventually a man named Muhammad would transform those believers and their ideas into Islam. You should move on to, uh, let's see, this would be slide number four. Muhammad was a man born in the city of Mecca to a powerful Meccan family. Ultimately, at the age of 25, he became a merchant and trader. Muhammad also took a great interest in religion and often would spend a lot of time alone praying and meditating. Around the age of 40, Muhammad's life was changed when a voice called out to him while he meditated in a cave outside of Mecca. According to Muslim belief, the voice was the angel Gabriel, who told Muhammad that he was the messenger of Allah. Allah is the name for the one true God in Arabic. It is the same God that both Christians and Jews believe in. Muhammad became convinced that he was the last of the prophets, and he began to teach that Allah was the one and only God, and that all other gods must be abandoned. People who agreed to this idea began to, began to follow uh, Islam, and those people were called Muslims. Now, uh, let me see here. Uh, in Arabic, okay, Islam means submission to the will of Allah, and Muslim means one who has submitted. Muhammad began preaching his ideas around the city of Mecca, but he was met with hostility. People believed that, uh, oh, and I'm sorry, make sure that you switch over to uh, slide number five now, okay? People believed that uh, his ideas would lead to the neglect of traditional Arab gods, and they feared Mecca would lose its place as a famous place of worship. The people of Mecca began to attack any followers of Islam. So Muhammad decided to leave Mecca in 622 CE. Muhammad, with his band of followers, moved to the town of Yathrib, about 200 miles north of Mecca. Yathrib would become known as Medina. And if you look all right, on the uh, map that's presented, presented there for you, you see that it says, you know, Mecca and Medina are in modern day Saudi Arabia, okay, which again is a part of that. Um, uh, part of the Arabian Peninsula, okay, and you can see that, you know, they aren't uh, really that far apart. All right, so the migration from Mecca to Medina would become known as the Hijra. Now, Muhammad attracted many followers because of the forced migration uh, and in Medina, I'm sorry, he attracted many followers because of the forced migration from Mecca to Medina, and in Medina he became a religious leader and military leader in the growing conflict between Mecca and Medina. Now, in 630 CE, Muhammad and 10,000 of his followers marched back to Mecca. The leaders of Mecca surrendered to Muhammad and he entered the city once again. He destroyed all the religious artifacts in the Kaaba and made a call to prayer from its roof. Most Meccans then converted to Islam, and by doing so, they joined the Ummah, or a Muslim religious community. Muhammad died two years later at the age of 62, but he united uh, most of the Arabian Peninsula under Islam. 
All right, now that we've looked at the origins, what we're going to look at now is uh, the beliefs and practices of Islam. Now, uh, the main teachings of Islam is that there's only one God, and that is Allah. To be a Muslim, all believers must carry out five duties, and these are known as the five pillars of Islam. And you can see a picture of those, okay? Here that it, it tells you that uh, you have declaration of faith, obligatory power prayer, excuse me, compulsory giving, fasting in the month of Ramadan, and then a pilgrimage to Mecca. So, um, now, let's go back and go through those. One, all right, is faith. Now, to become a Muslim, a person has to testify that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Two, prayer. Pray, you must pray five times a day, and Muslims must face toward Mecca when they pray. Three is to give alms. Muslims must meet the social responsibility by giving alms, or alms means giving money for the poor. Four is fasting. During the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, Muslims must fast between dawn and sunset. Five is pilgrimage. All Muslims must perform a hajj or a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lives. All right, and a hajj or a pilgrimage is a um, holy journey. The five pillars of Islam make up the basis for how followers of Islam are supposed to practice their faith. Now, in addition to this, there are a couple other um, uh, beliefs or um, guidelines, and it's that Muslims are not allowed to eat pork or drink alcohol. All right, uh, you should move on to slide uh, on to slide number seven now. Uh, all right, so uh, these beliefs and ideas were written in what is called the Quran, which is known as the Holy Book of Islam. The Quran is written in Arabic, which is a type of language. Wherever followers of, followers of Islam went, they took the Quran with them, and thus Arabic became the language of any followers who joined Islam along the way. This led to Arabic uniting conquered peoples as Muslim control began to expand. Now, lastly, all right, uh, what we want to look at is another part of uh, Islam is what is called Sharia law. And basically what Sharia law is, it's a system of law in Islam that regulates the family life, moral conduct, business, and the community life of Islam of Muslims. Alright, you should move on to the next slide, which is slide number eight. And in slide number eight, we're going to look at the similarities between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Now, I understand that we have not yet in the year gotten to Christianity and Islam or and Judaism. They'll be next, um, but uh, I feel like these two religions are Christianity and, and Judaism are um, pretty familiar to most of us. All right, so I think we'll be able to, you know, look at the similarities uh, between the three. All right, so uh, so to Muslims, Allah is the God is the um, same God that is worshipped in Christianity and Judaism. However, Muslims view Jesus as a prophet, not the Son of God. To Muslims, Muhammad is the final prophet, not Jesus. However, all three religions believe in heaven and hell and a day of judgment. In addition to this, Muslims, Christians, and, and Jews all trace their ancestry to Abraham. Also, Muslims refer to Christians and Jews as the people of the book. 
because each of them have a holy book with teachings that are similar to the Quran. Finally, these three religions also have codes of conduct that they must follow. In Christianity and Judaism, it is the Ten Commandments, and in Islam, it is the Five Pillars of Islam. Both of these codes of conduct mold followers of their faith into who God truly wants them to be. Alright, so the next thing that we're going to look at now is the expansion of Islam, and you should take a look at the next slide, right, which is slide number nine, um, and on that you can start looking at the map as I talk about this. Alright, so, when Muhammad died, the Muslim community faced a crisis because no successor had been named. Relying on ancient customs, the Muslim community elected a loyal friend of Muhammad, Abu Bakr, as the first caliph. Caliph means successor. Abu Bakr and the next three caliphs elected had all known Muhammad. They used the Quran and Muhammad's actions to guide their leadership. Because of this, they are known as rightly guided caliphs. Abu Bakr promised to uphold the teachings of Muhammad. Shortly after Muhammad's death, local tribes on the Arabian Peninsula abandoned Islam. They refused to pay taxes, and some began declaring themselves as prophets. To stop this, Abu Bakr introduced jihad. Jihad refers to the inner struggle against evil, but it can also mean in the Quran an armed struggle against unbelievers. Over the next 100 years or so, the caliphs extended the Muslim empire, and by 750, it stretched 6,000 miles from modern-day Spain across North Africa into the Arabian Peninsula and east to the border of India. And all that is shown on the map. Despite all the success in expanding, the Muslim community had a serious internal conflict. And if you go to the next uh, slide, we're going to look at the schism or the split in Islam. Uh, and so here what you're going to have now is you're going to have two different types of uh, Muslims. You're going to have Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. Uh, okay, so... Uh, what you have here is you're going to have a family known as the Umiyads are going to come to power. And they move the Muslim capital to a city known as Damascus. They began living a lavish lifestyle with great wealth instead of living simply. These issues began to divide the Muslim community. However, the issue about who the caliph should be caused a major split in Islam and this split still exists to today. The two groups are called the Shia and the Sunni. The Shia believed that the Caliph needed to be a direct descendant of Muhammad, and the Sunnis believed that leadership of Islam should not be a birthright. There are other differences, as you can see in the um, graphic organizer, but at its core, this is the biggest difference about who the successor, who the Caliph should be. Should it be someone who is that is related to Muhammad, or should it be um, should the ruler be someone who is righteous and not have to do with birthright? Today, about 85% of Muslims are Sunni, and the rest are Shia. All right. So, uh, let's move on to uh, our next topic, and you can move on to the next slide, which is going to be slide number 11, and this is going to deal with the Abbasid uh, Caliphate, which um, is between 750 and 1258 CE, okay? 
Now, the Abbasids governed the Muslim Empire during a prosperous period. Riches from all over Europe, Asia, and Africa flowed into the empire. They supported science, math, and philosophy, and the large luxuri luxurious cities that they built attracted people from these areas of study. In this special atmosphere of learning that was created by Islam, the scholars preserved the knowledge that was discovered and produced an enormous amount of learning because of it. The capital of the Abbasid Caliphate was called Baghdad. Okay, um, and if you look at the map there, all right, you can see in the red that is going to be the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, and if you look, all right, uh, it says Abbasid right in the middle of the, the red there. And just to the, um, in the upper left, okay, just to the, the left of that, you can see um, the capital city of Baghdad, which today is in uh, the modern day uh, country of Iraq. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, Baghdad is located on the west bank of the Tigris River, and it was discovered around 762 CE. The location is on key trade routes that gave the caliph access to trade goods and ideas. The Abbasids used three major trade, work, trade networks to trade. These were the Mediterranean Sea Complex, the Indian Ocean Complex, and the Silk Road. These trade networks allowed the Abbasids and the Muslim Empire to be connected to places throughout the Eastern world. Baghdad's population at one point reached 1 million people, and its population was very diverse. It was made up of different cultures and social classes. Okay, um, so here what you should do is move on to the uh, next uh, slide, which is social classes and women in the Abbasid Caliphate. All right, so again, Muslim society had four social classes. The upper class included those who were Muslims at birth. The second class were people who converted to Islam. The third class consisted of the protected people or the people of the book and mostly included Christians and Jews. And the fourth and lowest class were composed of slaves. When it came to women in the Muslim empire, they had varying roles and rights. The Quran says that men are the managers of the affairs of women. However, the Quran also declares that men and women are believer, as believers are equal. Sharia law gave Muslim women specific rights concerning marriage, family, and property. This gave Muslim women more economic and property rights than European, Indian, and Chinese women during the same period. However, Muslim women were still expected to submit to men and follow their orders. Poor women often worked in the fields with their husbands and were dependent on their husbands for most things, while women who were wealthier supervised the household and had servants. They also had access to education like poets and scholars. In the early days of the Muslim empire, women could participate in public life and gain an education. However, over time, Muslim women lost these rights and were increasingly isolated, even going as far as to be expected to be completely veiled or covered when in public. All right, let's move on to our next slide, which is slide number 13. Uh, and we're going to look at the advancements in learning during the Abbasid Caliphate. So as mentioned before, during the Abbasid Caliphate, extensive learning occurred. 
In science, Muslim rulers wanted um, advancements to help doctors treat and cure illnesses. In math and science, they relied on mathematicians and astronomers to calculate the times for prayer towards Mecca. They also needed astronomers to form a calendar to mark religious periods such as the month of Ramadan. In addition to this, in science and math, Muslim scholars had two ideas that stand out. The first is their reliance on scientific observation and experimentation, and the second is the ability to find mathematical solutions to old problems. Muslims translated and studied Greek texts in science, but they preferred to solve problems by conducting experiments and uh, in laboratories instead of using logical reasoning, as the Greeks did. Muslim scholars believe math to be the basis of all knowledge, and they are credited with creating the subject of algebra. Many advances in math were related to astronomy. Muslims obser Muslim observatories charted stars, comets, and planets. Okay. All right, so let's move on to our next uh, slide, which is slide 14. All right. So in addition to science and math, art and architecture, art, architecture and literature also flourished. During the Abbasid Caliphate, literature such as poems about nature and love began to be created. Popular books included a story called The Thousand and One Nights, or most of us would know it. If maybe you do, maybe you don't. It's known as Arabian Nights. And even if you haven't heard of Arabian Nights, there is a popular Disney movie that I'm sure all of us have seen that is based on a story in the Arabian Nights, which is called Aladdin. All right. So besides literature, art and architecture, uh, besides literature, art and architecture flourished. As the Muslim Empire expanded, they entered into regions that had rich artistic traditions. Muslims continued these traditions, but often adapted them to suit their Islamic beliefs and practices. For example, Muslims believe that only Allah can create life. Therefore, images of living beings were discouraged. This caused many artists to turn to calligraphy, or the art of beautiful handwriting. In architecture, you can see a lot of cultural blending of the people that the Muslim empire conquered. They blended the construction of their mosques, which was a Muslim place of worship, with that of Greek and Roman architecture. And if you look at the picture there, right, um, if you were to zoom in, you know, you can see uh, the columns that we uh, learned about when we were talking about uh, Greek architecture and, and that continued with the Romans. So you can see that blend there. All right. Okay, let's move on to our last slide. All right. Um, and we're going to look at one of the most important aspects of the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, so uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe ends up going into chaos. And all of the scholarly and scientific knowledge that had been acquired during this time was lost. However, Muslim scholars and leaders preserved and expanded on that knowledge that was attained by the Romans and Greeks. They collected and translated the scientific and philosophical texts of these civilizations. Eventually, in Baghdad, at what is called the House of Wisdom, was opened, which was a combination of a library, an academy, and a translation center. Here is where scholars translated into Arabic and kept all the knowledge they learned from the Greeks, the Romans, the Indians, and Persian societies. And it's super important because if 
uh, these Abbasid Caliphate scholars had not decided to preserve all these texts, it's possible that we may never have known as much as we do about all of these societies. Okay. All right. So uh, that right there is the end of uh, this podcast. I know this is a um, pretty long one this time, but it's a really important subject. Uh, And uh, thank you for listening.